0: you've got a passage providentially that touches upon baptism and what baptism is. Um, do you know those, those times, those feelings, when it feels like you have to prove yourself? Maybe it's in a, in a job interview, and you ask questions like, what's a, a big weakness of yours? And you're, you're there left trying to be honest and, and, and self-aware, but also you don't want to tank your chances of, of getting this job. Um, or there's times where it's like, I want to show something that I've done, or Maybe we new people in a new setting where, oh, you want to say something, perhaps intelligent or clever or funny, to prove ourselves to new people. Um, perhaps you can even get into name dropping. I've got a kind of a embarrassing memory looking back at the start of uni when I was in a new class at the very start. And I, and I, and I yeah, I, I wanted to kind of establish myself. I wanted to show something of who I was. And so I, I just like did the silly name drop and then just became known as that guy for the rest of the week. And just that's <laughs> such a bad way of um, introducing myself. But we can want to prove ourselves. And today we have a passage where Jesus is asked by some Pharisees to prove himself. Show us who you are. What's going on? And we're going to see Jesus' interesting response. We drop in on the middle of a conversation between some Pharisees and Jesus. And we look at Matthew 12 today, continuing our series through Matthew. Sorry, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days, and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Prove yourself. That's what the Pharisees say. That's their instruction for Jesus at the start of our passage this morning. They want a sign. They want a big heavenly sign that proves to them once and for all who Jesus is. We're talking fire coming down from heaven, seas being split into Old Testament stuff is what they want. A big, immediate, dramatic sign to prove to them. But haven't they had enough proof? Haven't they had enough evidence? Just before this, we've had Jesus heal two blind men. Then there was a man with a withered arm, and Jesus healed that. And and just at the start of this conversation, there was a a demon-possessed man, and that demon was causing him to be, be blind and mute. And Jesus casts out this demon, healing the man. And that's at the very start of this conversation. That man is probably still there at the side watching this conversation go on. I wonder, maybe slightly awkwardly, like, do I count this as a sign? (laughs) There's there's so much, but proof isn't the issue. The, The issue is not how much evidence is there as to who Jesus is. The issue is their hearts. Jesus says just before this, in the same conversation, that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. What we say reveals the condition of our hearts. What the Pharisees say here proves to us and to Jesus what's going on in their hearts, in the Pharisees' hearts. Jesus' cardiologist-in-chief says that they are evil and adulterous. Why evil and adulterous? Evil, because they're currently plotting to kill and destroy Jesus, and Jesus knows that. And adulterous, they are spiritually adulterous. God has come in the flesh and is standing before them and they are refusing him because God is not on the throne of their lives. They are themselves. Their, their desires, their, their ego, their, their hunger for the praise of men, that's, that's what they're after. And, and, and so when, when God comes before them and Jesus says, I am from God, of God, they don't want to have anything to do with that. It's, it's, it's inconvenient truth. And so they, they set up this these hoop after hoop for Jesus to jump through. Prove yourself again, Jesus, and, and again, do, do something else. Because as long as we can keep on putting different hoops for you to jump through, I can keep on living my life how I want to. So they say, prove to us again who you are. It's a delaying tactic. The issue is not the proof, the issue is their heart's. Their hard hearts, not porous to the truth of who Jesus is. We can often think, can't we? If only I was there in, at the time of the Gospels, if only I saw with my own two eyes Jesus heal someone of their blindness, then I would find it so easy to believe. But the Bible is telling us that, that no, that many people saw Jesus do mighty works and still couldn't believe. Because the issue isn't our hearts. The issue, the issue isn't the evidence, the issue is our hearts. Hearts hardened against who God is. And it requires God in grace to work. And hallelujah, in us, He has shown us who He is. All of us, like the Pharisees, hearts hardened against God until God worked in us. So the Pharisees asked for a sign. And now perhaps people in the, in the crowd nearby are, are wondering what Jesus will do next. Will he multiply some food? Will he heal someone else? What will he say? And then Jesus says, you'll have the sign of Jonah. What? That, that Old Testament prophet? Why are you raising him up? We want to see something dramatic and immediate. But Jesus says they will see the, giant, the sign of Jonah. He, he rejects their request for, for an immediate and dramatic sign. He says they will see a sign be the sign of Jonah, he says this. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says there'll be a sign to come and an ultimate demonstration of who he is. And this is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament, He was sent to a people, uh, the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were the the enemy of Jonah's people, Israel. The Ninevites were known as a a harsh, cruel people, kind of akin to maybe modern-day ISIS and some of their activities. And so so Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows if he goes to Nineveh, his God might have mercy on them, and he wants God to have judgment on them. So he goes a different way. He gets on the boat, and he flees away. And as he's on this boat, fleeing from God, and this storm comes. And the sailors on the boat, well, they think they're all about to die. And Jonah knows it's because of him. So he says, OK, throw me overboard. And that's what happens. And the storm abates, and Jonah is thrown into the sea. And, and, a, and a big fish swallows him, and he's there for three days and three nights. Jonah goes deep down into the sea, and he says, I, I'm in Sheol. I am in the place of the dead and he prays from there for three days. And then God says, arise. God God raises him up, the fish spits him out, and he goes again, and then he goes to Nineveh. So too, Jesus is saying that he will be like Jonah. He will be the greater Jonah. He will be cast into death, not for his own sins, his own folly, but for us. He will die and be in the heart of the earth, in the place of the dead, before being raised up to preach good news to people far away from God. The sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says there is an ultimate sign of who he is, and that's the cross and empty tomb. The Pharisees ask for a glorious sign, they want something immediate and powerful and mighty. And he stands there and points to his death. See the weakness of the sign he offers them. See the weakness of the cross in the world's eyes. They want a mighty display. They expect a Messiah in their own eyes, someone obsessed with might and glory and the acclaim of man. A Messiah strong and mighty who comes conquering and is impressive. In their minds, messiahs don't talk about funerals. And he stands there and he offers them meekness. He stands there and offers them what seems to be foolishness. Instead of asserting his rights, he gives them up. Jesus stands confronted and he points to his death. To the Pharisees, to the people surrounding the early church, the message of the Messiah's death, of Jesus' cross, was utter foolishness and weakness. It just didn't add up. Paul says, gets at the very same idea when he says this, Jews demand signs, we've seen that, Greeks look for wisdom. So people want impressive, powerful signs, they want clever, impressive arguments. But he says, we preach Christ crucified. We look to the cross. We look to the sign of Jonah. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's foolishness to Gentiles. It's not what the people want, it's utter foolishness and weakness. The crucifixion was a method of execution not primarily designed to inflict maximum pain, though it did. It was primarily designed to inflict maximum shame. It was a deeply shameful thing. It was to be made a public spectacle of. Roman polite society hated to even hear the word cross. You you just wouldn't say it out loud. It was utterly... Abhorrent, it was, it was foolish, it was weak to the world. It's weak to these Pharisees, it was weak to the people surrounding the early church. So these people, to, to have the early church go around saying, we worship a God who hung 10 feet in the air on a tree naked. It made no sense. It's not the God that we would make of our, of our own imagination. How does God reveal himself? How does he prove himself? Well, initially, it's in utter weakness. In what, in what looks to the world, what looks to, to natural man as foolishness, and the weakness. A number of years ago, they discovered some graffiti um, on, on a Roman wall dating from about 100 years after Jesus. I do not know people the graffiti back then, but I guess it's human nature. Um, and, and this graffiti on this Roman wall is of a cross. And there's a figure on the cross, and the figure has the head of a donkey, kind of... Foolishness, and there's a man, kind of carved in on this graffiti at the bottom, worshiping the man on the cross, and then the text says, kind of the the, the inscription alongside it says, "Alexamenos, Alex, worships his god." Alexamenos worships his god. This graffiti artist is is making a joke of this aleximenos Look at how foolish he is. He worships a god who came and died. And so as the early church went around preaching this message, that God had come in the flesh and died for his people, it cut across the wisdom of the world. And while we're fairly sanitized to the image of the cross today, we see it everywhere. Whilst the message of the cross has changed our society, it still is very much cuts across how we naturally think. Take, for example, um, atheist Richard Dawkins, who accidentally preaches the gospel when he writes this, that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, physical constraints, that this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. Richard Dawkins is saying that this isn't true because it's not clever and it's not powerful. So it can't be true. Meet Jesus who chose what is weak in the eyes of the world to save, to shame the wise. If the Christian life looks to you like obscurity and like weakness, my friends, look at the one whom we are following a God who uses the weak things of the world. To shame, the wise. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. Peter writes that Christ suffered as an example for us in whom, in, and we go after him, in whom steps we follow. And the word for example is the word for a, a wooden block that you would give to a child and you would carve in a letter. And then the child learning how to write would, could put their writing implement and they could trace out the exact inscription, the carving in the wood, learning how to write. That Christ is our example in his suffering. It is not weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world for him, but then glory for us now. Health and wealth and prosperity for us now. No, we go the same way as him. The world will not understand the message of the cross by its own metrics. He is our example. And it looks to the world like going low, like weakness, like meekness. And that's how God has made it. But in this path of 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 weakness, of giving up our rights, it's also the path of life, of joy, of what the world really wants. There is freedom and life here. So we do these things that feel weak. We we come together, we meet together. I often think at a home group as we gather together over some food and read the Bible. It's so simple. How does this change anything? but trust that, that God uses these simple things for such wonderful effects, that here is power here. Doesn't prayer often feel like weakness? But it is the weak things of the world that God chooses. Perhaps if you have, have children and, and you parents day after day you could feel perhaps monotonous or, or unseen. We are faithful in, in small things that no one ever sees. But this is how God has made the Christian life. Who came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus points to the sign of Jonah, his cross and empty tomb. And whilst it is weakness to the world, whilst it is folly to the Pharisees and to the world around the early church, it is also the power of God on display. Paul says that to the world, the cross is mere weakness and foolishness, but he says, but for us who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The place that looked like his greatest defeat, like weakness, was actually his greatest victory. What looked like his defeat by evil was his defeat over evil, his crushing of the evil one. The one who seemed to be the victim, actually the victor. Jesus defeated sin and death. The Bible says he put them to open shame. He conquered over them. Jesus points to his victory. And at the cross, we see what God is like. The sign of Jonah reveals who he is. He does point to something that shows who he is. And in what looks like folly and shame to the world, we see the glory of God. The cross is the declaration that God is holy and just. There is no injustice in him. He deals with every ounce of sin. And the cross is a declaration that God is loving. That in his great love, he has chosen to have mercy on us. And so at the cross, he takes the the punishment, the penalty himself. The cross declares God to be both just and the justifier of us who believe. The cross is just as displayed in harmony with his loving reconciliation of us. The cross does not show us our own goodness or our own glory, no more than a patient leaving an operating theater wakes up and boasts in their own ability at being healed. No, the cross points to his goodness and his glory. The cross is about God. There is no greater evidence, there is no greater sign of his reign and glory. To people asking for a sign, asking for proof of all the things they would see, there would be no greater sign than the Son of Man hung on the tree is the ultimate sign of who he is. In his humiliation, he is exalted and enthroned as king. God shows himself to us through his works in history, and we see his nature on this Roman cross. The king has come. And so the Christian life, it centers around the cross. It is built upon it. It's a, the cross we remember and act out in, in baptism, as we've seen. That the people of God have always gone through waters, symbolizing death and judgment into new life. The sea often symbolizes death and judgment. So, God Noah passes through waters of death and judgment into life. The people in the Exodus they pass through waters of death and judgment for the, for the Egyptians into new life. For Jonah, he goes down deep into waters he describes as death, but is brought into new life. And Sam and Tujay, they passed through the waters, united Christ, with Christ in his death, but into new life, all because at the cross Jesus died, all because he drowned under the waters of God's judgment at the cross and then came through into new life. It's all about the cross. Our lives are built on the cross. It, something we didn't deserve, we could not earn, entirely passive in. Lots of times a day we can be we can feel like we are asked to prove ourselves. Put on the spot, asked for a shine to show our own glory, perhaps by bosses at work or or family members with with family pressure, we can be asked to show our worth. And in that moment, we can choose, we can either look inside of us and try and produce something that establishes our own glory, something we've done, something we could say, or we can die to ourselves and boast on the cross alone remove ourselves from the center of our lives and focus on him where life is found. We can look to Jesus and the cross and know freedom from the demands of the world to live a certain life, to strive for glory and impressiveness. We aren't to be satisfied with great thoughts of ourselves, but great thoughts of what is truly good, of knowing the glory of God in Christ. friends, have you seen the cross? Have Have you really seen it? Have you seen the judgment your sin deserved there? Have you seen God settling up accounts with you in his son there? All your sin paid for there. Have you seen how he purchased you? Have you seen how he broke the sting of death from you? Have you seen how he won for you every good thing, namely himself. Have you seen the Father's love for you there? Not loving you because of the cross, but eternally decreeing the cross because of his love for you. Have you seen the love of the Son for you there, with joy going to redeem a people for himself? And it is with love and joy that the Spirit reveals to us the wonder of what God's done on the cross. And finally, if, if, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian today, it really does come down to the cross and resurrection. It's the sign that Jesus points to. It's the sign we as a church point to. It's what our faith is built upon. If Jesus is still dead, if he did not rise, if this is all a lie, then we can all go home. It's all entirely pointless. No amount of good works, clever arguments, mighty signs. Impressive talks would ever change that. But if Jesus is alive, if he rose on that third day, then we have to take seriously what he said. If he rose, the whole world is different. And you may have many questions and objections about what the church is, about what we believe. And that's okay, but if the king is alive and the whole world is different, this is the question to consider when you consider Jesus and Christianity. The cross and the empty tomb. You don't need any of the signs, but the sign of Jonah.